Hi everyone, I'm Dennis and this is Sheev Valley, a show about Sheffield startups where I conversate with founders from the Steel City and dive deeper into their entrepreneurial journey. Sheev Valley was created to increase the connectedness between and the visibility of entrepreneurs, investors and startup support organizations in Sheffield. Today's episode is with Sam Chapman, founder of The Flow. Sam is one of the most established tech entrepreneurs in Sheffield, having scaled The Flow from a founding team to more than 120 members and working with clients in the insure tech space from all over the world. Sam also recently announced that The Flow has been acquired by Autonomo, which was yet another reason for me to be eagerly waiting for this episode. But before we start, I wanted to bring your attention to Startup Week in Sheffield. Startup Week in Sheffield is an event I've talked not once or twice on Shiv Valley, and we even made an episode for the event with an ex-winner, Lainey Kandro, because I'm a big believer in learning entrepreneurship from Startup Weekend. For those who don't know, this is a weekend-long, 55-hour-long startup building competition where you come on Friday equipped only with a laptop and your startup ideas and leave on Sunday having built a team, developed an MVP and business model and having pitched in front of a fantastic jury. Startup Weekend Sheffield is celebrating its 10th year anniversary in the Steel City, so we wanted to acknowledge this and thus we are giving away the first 10 tickets for only £10. If you want to redeem this offer and get your £10 ticket, which is normally valued at £40, go to the show's notes and click the Startup Weekend link, which will take you to the page where you can buy your ticket. And with nothing left to announce, I'm happy to move on to my conversation with Sam Chapman, founder of The Flow. Enjoy. Hi, Sam. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Great stuff. Um, Sam, I'm really interested to hear about the flow. I know that there's been some exciting news about the business recently, but before we dive into it, I want to learn more about you uh, and your career prior to becoming an entrepreneur. I'm always interested to learn more about these backgrounds. What led, what led to Sam Chapman becoming a founder? So please take us through your professional path up to the moment when you started the flow. More than happy to. So I grew up in rural Lincolnshire and eventually found my way to, to Sheffield. I've been here for about 20 years now, so I've actually been in the city for quite some time. I my, my first came here, I was um, uh, doing that because I was working with friends in the music industry and it seemed a central location for a few things to do in that area, but it wasn't a real job. I obviously came here, started to study, did my university, I uh, did an undergrad and a master's, and that was in software engineering and uh, master's of research at the University of Sheffield. After that, I left and got my first job, which was not in the area I'm in now. It actually was in making console computer games. So I was working for the games industry, making a whole series of games that people may or may not have heard of that had had some success, but over the years, and I named to a number of those titles. But after a few years of that, um, about three years of working in that particular industry, that particular company I was working for, which was I was employed from France, decided that uh, they were going to move everything to America, had the option of going to Texas. I thought it was a time for career change. They also gave me, being a French contract, a very large amount of cash for a severance idea, which gave me the opportunity to go back to university and do a PhD. So that seemed the, the kind of first step from uh, work back into academia. But during academia, I was a little bit more focused on, on projects and commercialization. I think this is the first kind of path that I took towards being an entrepreneur. I was involved in a whole range of projects and project delivery across as a member of staff of the university, but at the same time doing a PhD. 
So I was involved in IP, commercialization, taking projects into market and helping clients and customers. So it was a very good training for me for actually a whole variety of different things. And I worked in a lot of different areas and doing all sorts of different um, activities. But after a while, I got a little bit frustrated with the fact that it was proving the principle of something, but never really taking it through to fruition, to taking it to, to actually have an impact in the world. And I got a, a, a patent at one point to link to some aerospace work. And I thought that seemed like a good opportunity to start a company. So this was my first kind of venture where I thought oh, on the back of that, I'll start, start a company and I'll, I'll exploit this. I'll do something. So it was a spin out company linked to the university and um, still connected to research as well. But after a very short period of time, the aerospace company we were planning to work with decided it wasn't such a good idea to continue in that, that particular exploration after only like six weeks in, in the job, in the company, being CEO, set it up, and all of a sudden your, your client you're banking on disappears. Yeah. So that moment, there was a, a need for kind of rethinking, and I quickly kind of pivoted and pivoted the company to start providing services for other people, so digital services for a range of different people. And I started to do a range of different activities, and some of those were linked to things that I'd done before in research, but also new clients around the world. So I started building systems for reverse auctions for international food market. I did software for monitoring and looking at emerging disasters and how that would play into disaster response scenarios. So I did a whole range of different things for quite high value um, clients. And that was quite interesting, but it didn't, it, because it wasn't really the theme of what the company was set up for, it was a bit all over the place. It was uh, until we kind of solidified that down and turned it into something that was successful. That company's still going today, but it wasn't really built for that. It was built originally to try and service the aerospace world and didn't qu quite manage that. In the end, it was doing aerospace work. They did come back eventually, and I was doing a lot of work with aerospace in use data, um, which then kind of ties into what I'm doing today. But there wasn't really a route to grow that capability of that company. It, it reached a certain point and you couldn't tell anyone else what we were doing because it was working for things that was uh, data. We couldn't tell people about exactly what we were getting. And it was very hard to find new opportunities. So I was, look, I was exploring new opportunities, looking for new things to do. And that's when the flow came around. That's a great, great segue onto the next question. And I actually have written down here a question asking you, whether you were always entrepreneurial and looking to build startups or whether the flow was your first venture. So you kind of answered that, which makes me want to really jump into talking about the flow now. So we're at this stage, you have gone through all of these experiences, which now you just mentioned with us, you have gotten also commercial experience as well in it. So take us through the flow. What was the, what was the why behind the flow? So in 2011, I met my co-founder for the first time, is a man called Aldo Monteforte, and he'd had a, a prior entrepreneur kind of track record, created a couple of companies linked to insurance. But something was happening in that market due to changing law at the European Union level, which was forcing all the insurers to drop how they predicted and have to come up with new solutions. So the, the law was um, the introduction of the gender directive, which meant you couldn't take as rating factors anything to do with being male or female. And obviously, young males are phenomenally more risky than young females, typically in the way that they drive, just because of the psychology of certain individuals on average. But to use that as a predictive factor is potentially unfair. So it was removed from thinking, which meant insurers lost their number one way of predicting the level of risk. 
and they had to find new solutions. So it created an opportunity where very large, slow-moving organizations were looking for innovation, and they were looking for someone to help them take them across that barrier and address things in a quicker uh, fashion. So it opened up potential. And I, we saw the opportunity, myself and Aldo, for how we could apply um, technology to the area of telematics. Now, telematics at that time was largely very expensive devices fitted into Ferraris. They were too expensive to fit into most people's vehicles and being able to get data out of a vehicle was too costly to fit into the cost of, a, of an insurance policy. So we kind of focused and looked at the technology that might deliver that cheaply. And that might be a new way to then start to understand risk. So we started to have a lot of conversations about how we could build a product in that area. And we operated in stealth for that period because we didn't want to tell other people what we were doing, because obviously it was a, an area that other people were exploring what might could occur in this yep. new, new regulatory environment, whereby people were looking for alternatives. And there wasn't many of us. It was me and Aldo. So we, we didn't really, and, and he doesn't have a programming background. Yeah. So in terms of actually trying to produce a solution, it was actually, we had to take it quite slowly, carefully work out what we wanted to do and try and build that proposition in the background whilst having quiet conversations with select insurers that we targeted. So we decided to do that. And in February, 2012, we incorporated the company. So all of these conversations are happening well in advance of this. By the time we incorporated, we had a plan and that plan was a bit ambitious because we, we had a plan to get the number one insurer in the UK, our next client to be international, which for a you know, two-person startup, you know, get that company ready and then bring a few more people in, but with very limited budget was, was a definite ambition. And that was something that I really relished after the first companies that I'd been involved in that were successful in themselves. They made money, they generated cash, but they didn't have that growth trajectory. And that's what I was really looking for. Well, tell me more about this, by the way. Like I've, I've heard the story before from you because uh, I was lucky to attend one of your talks at the start of Sheffield last, uh, last summer which, uh, with Andy from Andy Stratton from Uni of Sheffield. Yeah. Yeah, but, but now it's a fascinating story about the, the work with your first clients. So can you please expand on that a little bit? Because obviously I'm, I'm sure that there's people listening to this podcast who are probably a team of one or team of two and you know, they, have, they have these ambitions in mind. But can you please take us through through those times? Obviously, the situation was much different than it is now with the flow. Of course, but it was very different times. But there was an opportunity, and there's always this opportunity where there's change, and this is what we sought sought to leverage. So we created a a prototype of how we could deliver something. It was not a finished solution. It was yeah. something that could prove the principle of something that could be done, but it wasn't actually something you could roll out to market at that point. We then started to have um, conversations with insurers and because they were looking for uh, solutions at this time, they were quite open to having people knock on the door if there was the potential of something new. And this was the beginning of what later became called InsurTech. InsurTech wasn't a thing when we started this, but it was the beginning of that type of movement. So we started to contact insurers and trying to say, well, this is what we can deliver. And, and we were getting a lot of interest but from most that we spoke to, not all, yeah. <laughs> um, about the potential of this. But it was a case of, well, how are you going to build it? There's only a few of you. How are you going to get this yep. across the line? The idea sounds great, but and it's the sort of thing we want. We're under NDA, but how do we take this further? Yep. It, so we, we took that prototype and we applied it to the executives of those firms. and 
looked at the data we could see of how they were driving. We fed that data back to them and suddenly they realized that they had something very different. Yeah. So we started to tell them about the risk that they were undertaking. We started to tell them about scenarios of last Thursday when they went to the supermarket or whatever it was yeah. that they did a particular maneuver on a particular corner. Now, we hadn't built the analytics for that. Yeah. What we did was really close, fine-grained manual analytics of what you could pull out. Yep. And then demonstrated that principle and proposal to them that they suddenly realized we could get new insights that would make a difference in a billion dollar market. And we were cheap. We were a couple of people. So their funding for that was was much easier than them building something. And it was an idea to try and leverage if we could bring in the skills. So we attracted some initial investment and initial clients to build a pilot. And that was the first customer. And that first customer was uh, Direct Line, which was uh, a big, big name in the day and obviously the number one insurer in the UK. So it was, it was a good thing to, to win at that point. And we were courting quite a lot of insurers and trying to find that feature one because this movement led by European law was actually being followed first by the UK. So what we were doing here would set the agenda for the rest of the world. So we were trying to play upon that and get the yep. biggest climate, get the best trajectory so that we could go and go to the next one and get more. So a lot of this was tactics, strategy, um, rather than technology. Technology was obviously a big part of this. And what we built was a, a means to be able to collate information and analyze it to pull out some information that improved upon the existing situation, which at that point was being destroyed by legislation. So they had no particular way to do anything. So our technology at that point still could predict a degree of risk. And that was enough. Yep. It didn't have to be the perfect solution. We, had, we could have refined that over the time. But what we had was a roadmap and a project vision that aligned to their strategy. And that allowed us to go further. So we were building this concept of what we were trying to do in conjunction with a number of insurers for what we what they were looking for to try and build new solutions to get something new into the market. Now that, that first one was, was great. We, we got the first few people through the door. We got some employees. We managed to, to rent a proper office. We managed to get, get a number of nice things happening and released our first app. But as soon as right. that first app was out, we rather than keep pushing that and get interest from the other UK insurers that were suddenly going, hang on, what's going on here? We just... If we, if we followed that route, we would have only had, we still have one customer in the UK. They'd be fighting against each other, who was their supplier, and then trying to lock us down. Yeah. So we, rather than compete, and rather than aim for UK customers, we aimed internationally. Yep. And we went straight off to what we thought was America, but our first client didn't turn out to be in America. It turned out to be Argentina outside, which was a little bit of a surprise to us. And so getting on the plane to Argentina and then arriving and realizing they had very different challenges, very different problems, very different uh, needs than they did in the UK. So we thought, well, if we can make this work here, it's going to work anywhere. And we took that as the next challenge and sunk resource into solving a solution that would work in different environments. And that allowed us to build what was then the precursor of a product that we could then apply to multiple insurers. And that allowed us to move quite quickly in the market, hitting as fast as we could before others would actually be able to deliver new solutions, gathering low cost data, just using smartphones. There was no box to install. There was nothing yeah. to pay for for a SIM card. There was no distribution route and no professional to install it in the vehicle. It was a very different cost model for the insurers to basically put that technology in and make a difference. And we were the first to make that work from a smartphone because unfortunately, anyone that had tried before didn't really know what they were doing technically. And it just didn't work from a battery standpoint. So no customer would ever want it. 
because we were the first to deliver a solution that worked well enough to deliver enough insight to be of value. And that was the thing that allowed us to get started and then look wider at what we could do, not just gathering stuff from a mobile, but expanding analytics, building new solutions and new products. And that was the beginning and the birth of the flow and our move towards productization. Fascinating. When did you realize that you built a legitimate business and how did that change your style of leadership? So I think at the beginning, obviously, things were very different. And when we wanted to establish a, a legitimate business, it, it, was begin, it was apparent to me that we were building something big before we started. The fact that we could actually go to large insurers and, and speak to their board about what they needed and, and have interest, it meant we were in the right place at the right time. So at that moment, it meant to me that actually we have a strong potential here, but we must do this right. There were many others trying to do similar things. It didn't mean that we were going to be successful, but we were in a good chance and a good position. So that moment, it was very much a legitimate business. But even if it's a legitimate business, it was not many of us doing it. The leadership at that point was people getting around a table and saying, well, actually, what should we do? and everyone doing it the next day and they were done it wasn't really in case of of a long-term planning it wasn't really a case of of building things in terms of a full um, managed architecture it was just hack it deliver it hack it deliver it and change to make that solution that would work under the circumstances so that the, the aspects of leadership when we first started, it was a team of collaborators that saw the same vision and everyone just worked together quite happily. It wasn't really like a, a hierarchy in an organization and leadership and structure. It, it didn't have that to start with. So those, need, those things needed to come in as we grew. So as we gained a few more clients yep. that transformed the organization, we needed to bring in uh, new ways of managing the, the companies, restructuring it. And as we did... I would lose some of the things that I was doing before and some of them I enjoyed yeah. doing, but I wasn't an expert in many of the things I was doing. I was doing everything the company possibly needed. I was the designer, the marketer, the, the coder, the, I was doing absolutely everything you can possibly imagine that the company would entail. I was involved in all those tasks. So we took the approach of saying, well, if we need to bring in new skills, we need to think about what organization we're going to be in two years time, rather than get someone for what we need now. And then by the time they're embedded in, and they start working, we already need the next skills. Let's try and get someone who's going to drag the company forward. So we tried to bring people with experience or with mm-hmm. uh, an, an attitude that would help us, that we're used to working in bigger firms that would help us bring that change faster. That meant it was quite a shock, not just to our staff, but to me as well, Yeah. Um, in terms of how we had to evolve the companies. So there was a, a very fast pace of change. And that was all part of the excitement of the earlier years but over time we had to evolve into a different process and and that meant we had to move towards a very different solution because we we hit a barrier at one point whereby we were building solutions for individual insurers effectively or car companies or whoever they may be that wanted to understand mobility but each of those solutions had to be bespoke had to be different had to have their desire to it it wasn't productized and there was only so many we could support and, and we couldn't scale. We had to do something to try and bring that together to build a new solution. Yep. And that was the next kind of major challenge was how do we do that when everyone's still asking for what they want? 
So building something that can dynamically deliver what they want, but using the same thing is a much more complicated task than a standard product that everyone wants the same thing, off you go. So delivering that flexibility was very hard. So we started to do that in terms of how we would capture the data and have abilities to be able to switch it, to build front ends that would allow us to configure. But we still largely did bespoke work, but we're putting the plumbing in and slowly working it through the system until suddenly we announced, by the way, we've got a product and it works for anyone. Rather than taking 12 months to build your solution, we can do it in three weeks. So in terms of that, then widening the market allowed us to get more, more customers, which required investment because we got unstable at one time because we ended up with clients that were had a billion pound product, insurance product, being underpinned by our work with a few people in an office. And they didn't really see it as quite stable for the central part of their economy of, of how it was generating their business. They wanted to see stability and we weren't small enough. We went with big enough. So what they would do is they would typically start going around and consult consultants. How do we address this? Can we get IBM to solve the problem? Can we take this model that someone else has done here and then apply it with a big supplier? We potentially could have been cut out of the market in terms of delivering that new solution. We could have lost all our clients. So we had to come up with a new way of working and we had to come up with a new structure. And that new structure had to be seen as absolutely financially stable. It had to be seen as bulletproof to make sure that we were able to supply all our clients and customers without them thinking there's an SME with a risk. They had to see us as something that had money behind, cash in the bank, had to see that particular view, which meant we had to take on money. This was the first kind of investment that we took in. Yep. And this, we could have sought that from a number of sources. We could have gone in lots of different directions, but we aimed for a strategic investment. And the reason for that was rather than go down the VC route that would have taken some control, wanted us to deliver in a particular way in three years, kind of finalize their their returns and exit we ended up um trying to go well actually how do we best advantage this if we get someone from the insurance industry to invest in this actually that could further our aims and embed us deeper into their their technology and actually widen our product base so we actually got our first investment linked to a large insurer Uh uh, which did stop us working with other insurers in that country but that was okay because we had the whole world so it was fine, fine to do that. And it only limited yep. us for a time. So that lent, that lent us to get much deeper into the client organization infrastructure. So rather than just being a supplier to one business unit, yep. we were suddenly talking across 19 functional parts of the organization mm-hmm. and interfacing with them all, which makes them very hard to try and transition away from what you're doing. You become essential to them. Yep. And that allowed us to work in a very different way with our clients and change the way that we operated and we had to evolve all of that in a very rapid time over a over a few years yeah. with very rapid growth we were one of the highest growth companies in the uk we were in the top 10 at that period winning awards at every everywhere left right and center for doing so but it always had this fragility that it could have ended and we were on a race and we had to we had to function that fast otherwise it would have exploded yeah so we had to push that it, there was pressure on all the time to grow 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 to meet that requirement for stability and that was fundamentally the biggest rocket i've ever had to hold on to 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 get things to grow for any business i've ever been involved in yeah yeah and it sounds so interesting because usually what the startups um, have trouble with the most growth 
just growing at a stable normal pace and in your case you had the you had the problem of such excessive growth that you had to kind of control it put it into put it in a controlled box and being able to yeah to just to just really be able to manage it and to show your partners that you're being able to manage it so really congrats on on doing that it sounds like it was a very difficult task but i'm sure that again it, it comes down to leadership and uh, it must be different working in a team with your co-founder and then managing how many people is uh, the flow comprised of currently we're 120 people now and so obviously that's shot up quite a lot there's a organization structure and, and you bring in other people our leadership team has like uh, 20 kind of key people in our organization yeah. run various parts of it now and you know, when we started, it was, you know, two people meeting over over a meal to discuss yeah. what we did the next day and deciding major strategy that we'd pivot in an hour. Exactly. So, and that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, no. And we have to change the structure in the way that we work. So, so that evolution was required to be done fast and we had to do it early. Although insurers very early on were, we, we need an experiment to test new ways of, of understanding risk. Very quickly, they started to say, where's your ISO accreditations? Where's your affiliation with this particular industry body? Have, have you had, do you, are you involved in the advisory groups with the FCA and the UK government on the future of insurance? Yeah. And we're a small SME. So we had to start getting involved in things that typically larger organizations would put aside resources to do. Yeah even from a small size. So I, I put in place several ISO standards in two weeks, which is, which is madness when you think about it. But we put that in place in record time to, put, to, to restructure the company and restructured all the management and record keeping over a very short space of time. And then just carried on. And we just yep. kept doing that pace of change. And we had to do that to take hold of the advantage that we had built at the beginning, because it would have been so easy at various points in the history to to have lost that advantage yep. and we only kept that advantage from that early start and finding that opportunity by being fast being proactive and being willing to change and to yep. change the way that we lead things so i'd frequently start a task manage it own that particular task then employ someone to replace what i've just done so you'd find yourself constantly hiring to replace the thing that you've just learned how to do yeah. <laughs> so that you then tackle the next thing that you no one knew how to do. And you do that all the time. So the, the pace of learning was the fastest and the most kind of intense experience that I've ever had. And I think many founders remember this from the early days of, of, of any firm that grows. You just have to embrace it and you have to look through everything. And I found that challenging, exhilarating it absolutely drove me to focus on this because I found it the most interesting thing that I've done in yep. terms of the challenge that I was facing and the fact that we were achieving it. Yep. And, you know, very quickly after like even a few years, we were given a Queen's Award, went off to meet the Queen. We were flying around with the Prime Minister on, on yep. trade missions. And for a small company and the background we came from, that was like, okay, we're really moving fast here. There's something yep. going on. But we had to keep banking on it. We had to then go to China and sell that yep. and say, hey, look, here's us with the Queen. We got involved in the, the, the state visit from the Premier of China coming to the UK. Mm-hmm. And we officially signed an agreement with China for our next investment yep. based around that particular movement, which then brought even more money into the company to yep. keep that stability as we grew.
yeah. because it was vital for us for the sector that we're in to maintain that particular footprint. Now, sure. some firms in our sector, in the insurtech sector, they do tend to be very much financial-based, city-based, or a London city. Yeah. They yeah. may have workers behind them. We did this bootstrapped, and yeah. we got investors in to help. So we did this the hard way. Yeah. And I think that was just through the ability to move as fast as we could and being as dynamic as we could. And, yeah. and that was the essential thing that really drove our success. Brilliant. I guess also having the queen as one of your leads definitely helped in getting yeah, extra. That, absolutely. That that does help. It, it, it's a, it doesn't help in many countries. Some of them kind of go, yeah, and so what? Uh, yeah. But in certain countries, it, it becomes a big thing. In, the, in yeah. the US, it's very important for sales. In the Far East, it's very important for sales. Right. And to have that connection and to be able to say, actually, we've already got this award and here we are shaking hands with various people. Yeah. That actually helps. So you need to structure how you market and how you position yourself for different markets and their different expectations. Yep. And, and people think we're growing the same product and it's just insurance and we provide a solution that monitors mobility, but it's not. It's very different for every country. They've all got yep. very different needs and demands. Yep. In, in South Africa, it's all about safety because people get carjacked all the time and that it, it, you know, insurers actually employ gunships, wow. um, helicopters with you know, to, to manage the situation where it links to issues where people may be at threat. So yep. there's very scenarios for how products fit together. Some of them are about theft. Some of them are about um, drunk driving. Some of them are about yep. fraud. And But how do you do all of that from understanding driving? Actually, it requires very different analytics, very different mm -hmm. very different subsets. So our product wasn't just the same thing all over. It had to be adapted through a different market. Yep. And building that flexibility in was absolutely key to our long-term success. Yep. Sure. And talking about products, this is just the feeling that I get from you that you're really passionate about talking about the actual nature of the products that you build and the technology that, that you use. And when I was looking through your website, I'm not going to pretend that I know anything about the depths of your products. Like, you know, I have some names here written down, Flow Drive, Flow Kit, Flow Score, which I want to hear your opinion, which one fascinates you the most, but also which one has achieved the most commercial success and why do you think that that was the case? Well, I think all of our products kind of fit together. They're designed to help solve a problem. So, so they're a little bit like Lego bricks. Our clients need a particular solution and it's part solved with one part and part solved with another. But all of the, the one with the most commercial success, the one that's the most vital to us would be FlowScore. It's the analytics to understand mobility that then everything else is underpinned. But right. we never sell that alone mm -hmm. because you need to gather the data in the first place. You need a, a, a tool to gather that. You need a yeah. tool to feed back to the end users. And all, all of these have different parts. And we put these parts together to build solutions that are relevant for our um, clients around the world that have differing needs yeah. upon how they would understand that data. What, what interests me though, and what fascinates me about the, the, the products we have is is none of those. It's actually the next one that we have. It's always the, the next thing or the next feature that we would add into what we're doing. And that's the thing that, that drives me is building that new capability and seeing that the new opportunities and the excitement that that can bring. So launching new, new aspects into what we do is fundamentally the most exciting thing for me. And it keeps breeding more success and more interest in the market and allows us to do more and more interesting things. So when we started, we started with an app that gathered yep. data that was of interest to an insurer. Now we're doing all sorts of things to underpin with data, like autonomous vehicles. We're mapping road networks. We're using the information in different ways. We 
can gather data from lots of different devices, hardware devices, we have tag devices, we've got development kits and scoring solutions and fleet solutions. There's a whole series of different technologies, but they all focus on one thing, understanding mobility for the needs of that individual client. Now, individual client usually wants to understand risk to underwrite a product of some sort, but not always. Some, Some of the things we do understand pollution. Some of the things we do understand other aspects from how vehicles have an impact upon the world or the users that drive them. And wherever we can do that, it usually makes the world better. You recruit a lot of academics and scientists. Obviously, a lot of, a lot of the creation of your technology is science-based and you working with data and so on and so forth. Is there anything particularly unique about the recruitment process that you utilize with the flow to recruit certain people or yeah, just, just take us through your recruitment process and how do you work with academics and scientists overall? So I've got an academic background, which obviously, yep. and we get involved in a lot of research projects, which does tie us closely to some university work and, and that kind of analytic viewpoint of the yep. world. Because the job that we do is we take mass data, very large amounts of it, and try to understand it. So it, it does have that natural connection towards that part of the world. But how we manage that from a recruitment point of view is we try to draw people with wide backgrounds that bring new expertise to our company. And I mentioned before about how we would hire the person, not that we need now, but we might need in two years' time, because it drags the company forward. And it's, it's that that's actually leading to us to bring in new specialisms, new capabilities that allow us to go further. So we've got a very diverse workforce as a result. We've got like more than 12 languages spoken, which help us in like different international markets. And that's a strong thing for us to try and make sure that we have that diversity in what we do. But we've also had to, because of our periods of very strong and very pronounced growth that we've had to support, internalize really strong recruitment and HR capability within the company. And and that's absolutely essential. So, So we have the skills of, um, a recruitment firm built in-house yeah. because we need that to target the right people to get the right sort of skills into our um, into our company and, and and ensure that they fit the culture and the goals yeah. of the company because it's not just about getting people the right skills that have done the right academic work. We've got a very diverse workforce and it's not all academics and scientists. It says there's obviously a lot of developers. There's a lot of also you know, humanities, sciences as well. There's also a lot of finances and sales activities. There's lots of different types of roles that we do have. But the thing that we find best is we, because we've got a, a brand for leading our kind of sector and our industry in terms of what we do, that really helps because people come looking for us. We may get more direct applicants than other firms might get because we've built that brand. Yep. And and that is really helpful, but it's still a challenge. It is hard mm-hmm. to find people, uh, particularly when you're growing fast, it's very hard to yep. find people. So we've always had this challenge, but we've internalized the best skills to deal with that. And that's been an important part of how we handle ourselves. Yep. And what about some early stage advice for, for the founders out there that are hiring their, you know, fifth to 15 to 20th team member? Is there anything in the beginning, some kind of formula or or vision or some recruitment values that you had and that were helping you when you were making the, these recruitment recruiting decisions? So very early on, we kind of set a vision for the company kind of and we and core values. And we try to fit those into everything that we're doing. So that central vision is just to make mobility smarter and safer. And we build that into all our products, all our activities. And, and we always question actually, 
are we doing this thing just to make money or are we doing it to make that better? And if it's just yeah. to make money, we're probably doing the wrong thing because it doesn't align to what our customers want. Yeah. So we try to focus all our activity around that. And that goes through to our recruitment and it goes through to the staff that we bring in to try and buy into that vision because they understand from an external perspective what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. And when they come in, they see we're still doing that rather than, oh dear, I've now been put in this cubicle that then only does this. It, it breeds a better trust in terms of individuals, of, of the roles that they would expect. And I think that's a, a big part of, uh, of how we would position ourselves. But the main advice I have for startups that are looking for skills is to think about bringing in not just skills that fit in with your current culture and goals, but look at ones that challenge yourself. Yep. Look at ones that will bring in a new experience or have already worked in a different type of organization that bring in some expertise that would allow you to add some extra strengths to your management processes or, or into your sales processes or whatever. Even if it's not for that, they might be a technical person, but give you an advantage somewhere else. Look at those fringe aspects because those of those are very important and they help drive you forward quicker. And getting that diversity early on really helps you draw from a range of experience that can help you grow quicker if you can manage it. And it's, it can become hard to manage that, but it's worth doing it for getting that breadth of experience into your organization. Brilliant. And now I want to move on to the big news from the last few weeks. The, the acquisition that just happened, uh, the flow was, has been acquired by, is it Autonomo? Am I pronouncing it, it correct? Autonomo, yes. right. Yes. So what does it mean for, for the flow? What does that mean for you as well? And what's the future of the flow? Well, it's, it's early days and this is uh, recent news, but for me, this is hugely exciting. I mean, the flow are a global leader and innovator in telematics and insurance and risk understanding. And Autonomo are a global leader in vehicle data. What we're getting from our clients at the moment is we can see, you know, how we track individuals to understand that aspect of risk, but they, we don't really know under know everything, and particularly with the advent of more intelligent cars, more yeah. data from vehicles, this has started to become a desire of how do we put these things together? So either we could evolve that capability ourselves, or actually we bring these things together. So it's a strength for both Autonomo and the flow. Yeah. The flow is going to continue doing its work in the insurance sector, but underpinned by more data, more capability, yeah. and more expertise. So I see this as nothing more than a huge new set of massive opportunities yeah. that we can deliver. There will be a, a growth in what we do and there will be new things that we do as a result of this. It will take time for those to work through the system and to come out the other end. But the thing that is mo mostly to me is hugely exciting. And that to me is the, the thing that will bring the most promise and the most benefit is the opportunities that that brings, which is quite a lot. I don't think anything's going to dramatically change for a period yeah. of time. So in terms of what we're doing, we're looking to actually, how can we build something new? How can yeah. we do something better? Yeah. And the potential for that is huge. I don't think anything's going to change negatively. I think we're going to end up with an awful lot more we do in this region. That's yeah. going to impact. This was looking at the future, but now I want to look at the past again. And you, you build the business in Sheffield. And I'm just interested to hear from you about the experience of growing a startup in Sheffield. What are some advantages and what are some disadvantages? So for us, when we first formed, we were looking around the world for where we would actually form. So we had, uh, between myself and Aldo, connections in, in London. There was also in Stamford over in the US is where he was educated. Yeah. So we ended up with 
actually, where should we form this? Where should we build the, the expertise? What's, what's advantageous for this in, in the long run? Yeah. And I put forward Sheffield as an idea. I was based in Sheffield beforehand. And when we started to do the, the maths on it, we worked out very quickly. It was actually the much preferred option than being in London or Silicon Valley. We were operating, there's the cost of operation in both those places is, is crazy. Yep. So in terms of actually that starting position, we thought Sheffield, yes, fine, obviously, but it might not be long term. Mm-hmm. But then as we went along long term, actually, we keep seeing more and more advantages of being where we are. We serve a global. It doesn't help us to be in London or New York because we're dealing with people in every continent. So it doesn't where we are doesn't really um, matter in that sense. What it matters in that sense is that people are happy. We have staff retention. And if you're in London or Silicon Valley, you do not have either of those things because staff are always looking for the next opportunity and they leave quite quickly, which doesn't build up that workforce. It doesn't build up that resilience in your organization that allows you to grow. So I think for us, it's been hugely advantageous to be in this region. And more importantly, we've been embraced by the region and it's also helped to form alignments with a number of organizations. We're still doing projects with the university, we're doing projects with the local authority and so on. So we've got a lot of things that are actually advantageous to us being here that we wouldn't get somewhere else. And all of those have been brought up through growing in this area and supported by it. And I think that's very positive. The disadvantages, you did ask that as well, disadvantages of being in Sheffield is that the external perception of Sheffield is still that, oh, well, it's, isn't that where cutlery was made? And, and maybe you might get a few of the comments, but people don't quite understand, don't quite get that, that impression of how Sheffield has evolved over the years. And I think there is a job to be done in the city to brand that better, to make sure that people are more um, aware of the growing industry, industrial base that is not just antiquated manufacturing. There's advanced manufacturing, there is all sorts of digital industry in this region and advanced industries. And I think those need highlighting more from an external perspective for people to really understand the advantages of this region. And the two and the great skills that come from the university, definitely very helpful as well. Yeah. Great. Well, Sam, shall we move on to the five questions that I ask all of my guests on the podcast? Absolutely. Yeah. Great stuff. Let's start with a book. Now, I don't know whether you're a reader. Uh, I've had founders that are avid readers, some of which don't read books at all. Where do you stand on reading books for entrepreneurship? And also, if you had to recommend a book to future founders, what would that book be? So I I read a lot, but I read academic things. I read on, right. on bits and snippets. I read things online. I read um, articles. I don't necessarily sit down and read a entrepreneurial management book. That's yeah. not something that I devote time to necessarily. but So I wouldn't necessarily recommend a particular book for founders to follow. In fact, I think instead you need to follow your own path of what works for you. And no one book can ever help this. So being recommended an individual book and thinking that's the Bible you must follow, follow, I think is really bad advice. I think ultimately read widely is the best thing that I can advise. Each person's needs are different, but work out what helps you. And don't just look from one perspective of the thing that fits, that's comfortable. Look at the things that don't, learn those as well, because that really helps you understand the wider capability. And I think that's my recommendation without naming a particular book, I'm afraid. No worries. And now moving on to the next question, which is about the name. Why did you choose the name The Flow? 
So in the early days when we were first forming, we found ourselves in what is known as the state of flow. So this is a, a 19, well, 20 something psychologist who in the, about the 1970s came up with the theory of the state of flow. And it's the state of maximum productivity on the opposite side is apathy. There's various modes in between. And it's actually looked at the states where people are so engrossed in a particular activity that other things are not observed you don't see them you don't have awareness of passing of time you're just so engrossed and then you do something and you think i achieved all that in this time it's that state of maximum productivity and it's been used a lot in workplace studies and so on but so flow was that particular term and for us this particular psychologist and we found ourselves in that state in the early kind of creation of this because we were just so focused on trying to do this the name flow just seemed the perfect thing to fit it also traffic flow it fits the flow of flow of movement is it's also expresses what we do because we're looking at mobility the reason for the two o's is obviously we want something that's unique on google it still says flow it comes back to that heritage of where it comes from but it's actually unique if we put that in at the beginning in a browser we knew immediately that's going to be discoverable it's going to be findable it's going to be a brand it's something that we can identify with and and that identify um, that ability to identify that allowed us to create something and build up the brand. Admittedly, we do get called the flu. We do get called different things in different places in the world. And there is some confusion about the double O, but that usually invites a conversation. It allows us to explain yeah. it and explain what we do, which actually really helps us gain new business and gain trust and conversation with people that could be clients. My next question is about a place in Sheffield. So what's one, one place in Sheffield that we would recommend everyone to go and visit? So... I probably would say the theatres because Sheffield's blessed with them. But personally, I'd say one other thing above that, um, which is actually the Cutlass Hall. And the reason for that is um, because most people don't know really what it's like inside. They may even know where it is or have passed it or just see a, a grey facade in the middle of the city centre and wonder what that is. It's a closed society. What's going on? But inside, it's got 400 years of history behind its steel doors that really say what happened in this city it helped form the universities it helped getting it, it championed industry for a long time it's got its own act of parliament that establishes the made in sheffield brand which allows them to put out and attach to businesses for quality so it's had this long aspect and association to productivity but it's also had a long association to philanthropism in the region as well. So all the people behind that over the years, of half the parks of Sheffield have been donated by people related to it. But when you go inside that building, you see that history yep. and you see the artifacts behind it. And it's a part of history that isn't in a museum and it isn't something that you see in your day to day life. But it, it does open up every now and then. And I would recommend people go and see it just to understand that part of history in Sheffield. Now, my next question is with a philosophical tone. If you had 15 minutes with your 23-year-old self right now, what would you tell him? Back when Bitcoin started, <laughs> right at the beginning, I was actually just setting myself up to start mining it, thinking, that's interesting, I'll see what happens. And then I got distracted. If I could go back and say maybe that I should have carried on that, I'd probably be in a very different place now. But uh, it's a small, silly thing. Mostly, I don't really have regrets. I don't really yeah. have advice I would like to pass back. But for one jokey comment, it is one thing that yeah. I nearly did and didn't and yeah. probably should have stuck to. Tom, trust me, I've recorded 32 episodes of this podcast. 32 times I've asked this question. I was waiting for this answer <laughs> to come around because this is one of the most logical answers 
for this. And it's been 32 episodes. Thank you for finally making me feel sane. And that I'm not the only person that's thinking about this answer when they're being asked. I mean, let's be honest. It's, it, it's easy when we think about going back in time, having these philosophical talkings with our past selves and stuff. But we probably would use the time way more practically in reality. So I, I agree with you. Yep. And then my last question, I want to hear with one sentence, what's your big, hairy and audacious goal for the flow from now on? So for me, and, and perhaps boringly, I would say it doesn't change from our kind of mission. It's actually still the make mobility safer and smarter for all. Yep. And the reason for that is because although, yes, we've done an awful lot, we've changed transport, we've, we're underpinning like uh, transport changes in various cities in the UK, including Sheffield, for, for making roads safer with data that we support into there. And that's nothing to do with our insurance work. It's all, all things that we can do to try and advance and, yep. and fits to our motto. But we haven't done that for everyone yet, and we probably never will. But that yeah. means it's an ambitious goal that we still want to continue to do and use our data that helps in the right way and our solutions that help understand safety and bring it better for everyone. And I think that audacious goal that we started with after 12 years is still true, which most people I don't think can say, but I think that's something worth celebrating. Yep. Brilliant. Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. That was Chief Ali for today. I hope you found my conversation with some intriguing, engaging and informative, because I certainly did. Chief Ali's next episode is coming very soon, so subscribe wherever you're listening, or go to the show's notes and follow the link to Twitter to follow my official Chief Ali page. As always, thank you for listening, and have a great day.